Oh, hello, my lovely Sangha. So good to see everybody. It's Sunday. I love my Sunday teachings with all my friends. Uh, today's teaching, very exciting. We are finishing the series on the Buddha's uh, model of the nature of reality, which is really exciting. Today's teachings brings it all together and tells us, why are we listening to this? Why is it important? What does it do to benefit my life? So this class really ties it all together. And I was thinking about, uh, after the series, I was thinking about staying on the idea of person and, and teach about some other topics on uh, on the on us and our minds and consciousness that would be a nice topic uh, to start with uh, to share. Anyways, let's move on. So we just said our prayers. So um, <clears throat> uh, of course uh, we're just uh, today we're finishing the uh, teachings on the Buddha's nature of reality, which includes his teachings, the Buddha's teachings on the two truths dependent origination, emptiness, and today's teaching, which is on our true nature. But first, like always, let's take a minute to review what we've learned so far. Remember that this series is focused on how things exist, and not necessarily uh, that things exist. We're, we're assuming that things exist, and here we're talking about how they exist. Our first teaching in the series was on the two truths, that there are two ways to perceive ourselves in our environment, the everyday surface level perception of the way things exist and a deeper, more accurate perception. These two perceptions are referred to as conventional truth and ultimate truth. Our second teaching in the series was on dependent origination or interdependence, it's an easier word which asserts that all phenomena without exception exist interdependently, independence on parts, causes, conditions, and imputation or labeling by the mind. This refutes the idea of any independent self-existence. There is no such thing according to the Buddha. Uh, and last week's teaching was on the big topic of emptiness, and boy, people seem to really enjoy it. Something about that word draws everybody out. We learned that the Buddhist concept of emptiness, which is often called shinyata, tongpani in Tibetan, asserts that all phenomena are empty or lacking independent self-existence. The easiest way to understand emptiness is through understanding dependent origination. Dependent origination asserts that all things exist interdependently and are therefore empty of independent self-existence, while emptiness asserts the same thing, but says it in the opposite way, that because all things are empty of independent self-existence, they are interdependent. While emptiness also asserts that no single aspect or essence exists interdependently from other things that emptiness asserts that all phenomena are empty of any essential essence. This is referred to as essenceless or selflessness. We've had this term selflessness before. I think some people think selflessness is being like self, uh, self, uh, 
uh, not being selfish, but here we're talking about uh, the lack of any essence that's there, selflessness, okay. Um, this interdependent yet empty nature of phenomena is asserted by the Buddha as the true manner in which all phenomena exists, asserted as the ultimate nature of reality. Uh, so today, today's class, we're going to dig into and learn about our true nature, which is considered to be the most advanced topic in Buddhism to understand. Uh, the reason for this is because the topic is overly complicated by different and often divergent presentations by the various Buddhist schools and traditions. So, um, so when we talk about divergent views, um, we're talking about, you know, the Theravada tradition has their own view on what this is. The Tibetans have their own view. The Mahayanas have their own view. Um, so, um, uh, and, you know, one of the things about, I think when people are new to Buddhism, they come thinking that Buddhism has all the answers, you know, most religions, I think that that's the selling point. We have all the answers, right? Any question you, you, you have somehow the, uh, spiritual leader is able to answer it. And it's usually comes down to something like, because God said so. But in Buddhism, you know, uh, we, we approach the nature of reality in more of a scientific way. But what people don't realize is that a lot of these really heavy topics, even Buddhism itself isn't quite sure of how they feel about this stuff, which is absolutely intriguing. Now, every tradition is very sure that they have the right answer, but each tradition has a different a view of what the Buddha meant by some of these topics. And also, even within single traditions, whether it's Theravada or Tibetan, there's different schools within that that can often have really different views. Uh, for some of you that are in your uh, formal studies, uh, in I know we, we have students that are studying at Tibet House, where you get into studying the four tenets, it's one of the, the foundational aspects of, uh, of study in Tibetan Buddhism. And what it is, that there are four philosophical uh, views held within, within, one is Theravada and the other four and the Jamaka or Mahayana views. Um, but it shows you that how different all these views are. And even still the Gelug school of Tibetan Buddhism has a very different view of, of, of a lot of these topics of the nature of reality than the Sakya school or the Nyingma school. So we all want to think that uh, our traditions have all the answers and here they are laid out nice and easy for us and that we're right and everybody else is wrong. But the fact is, even within the same monastery, when I was at Sarah, there were teachers that had different views. So properly, you have to realize that Buddhism is still an open uh, a lot of these topics are an open debate still in Buddhism. Here's a great example, the Gelug school, which is the presentation we share, which I think is, is one of the, the more finished of the philosophical views. They really seem to uh, have taken it to the logical conclusion. But guess what? Tsongkhapa lived in the 15th century. So, uh, so the Gelug school of Tibetan Buddhism only arrived at their final view 500 years ago. So the Buddha was, the Buddha taught 2,600 years ago. So if you're a Gelug, 
the true meaning of the Buddhist teachings wasn't, wasn't arrived at until 500 years ago. Isn't that something? So that's why in secular Buddhism, we like to think that we're agnostic, that we understand the nature of wisdom, the nature of knowledge, that it's always changing. So the Buddha taught these things and they've been evolving and changing ever since. So it's best to have an open view about this. However, with that said, um, so this topic can be confusing in that way, but with that said, this topic is also the most liberating. This topic is the very aspect of the teaching that frees us from samsara. Oh, that's a big promise to make. So uh, like always, let's begin with the textbook presentation. Um, this teaching is actually referred to as the teachings of no self. Uh, but I called it the, uh, the, our teaching is the nature of our real, uh, the nature of ourselves and for good reason. And I'll explain here. Um, what the Buddha taught uh, in these teachings was a radical view of, of how we exist, truly radical, way different than the Brahma, Brahmins and the Jain traditions that were, that were there before. Uh, the Buddha stated that after thorough examination, he could not find any substantial as, uh, aspect or essential essence that is us, right? He could not find any self, soul, or spirit, right? Now, so this is what we're, what we're talking about, selflessness. We're, we're talking about that the Buddha found that we were empty of a self-spirit or soul. But this title can be very, is very contentious right now. There are many thoughts about what the Buddha actually meant by no self. Um, this is our first debate today, okay? We have a few debates because more than others, this topic is very, very much open to, uh, to interpretation. So I'm going to lay it all out for you. So our first debate uh, in this subject uh, revolves around the topic of the five aggregates. Aggregates are, means composite parts, collections, right? So when the Buddha was describing human beings, he described us as possessing five aggregates. And now the five aggregates are simply broken down to two aggregates of the body, one aggregate of the body and four aggregates of the mind. So what the Buddha is saying that what constitutes a human is a mind and body. And, um, but it becomes contentious when we try to understand, uh, do the five ag, did the Buddha mean to define the person by the five aggregates? Or do the five aggregates define what, do the five aggregates define what is the person or do the five aggregates merely define what is empty of self, that they're empty of self? I said that really badly. Do the five aggregates define the person or do the five aggregates define what is not the person? I'm sorry, that was better. That the five aggregates are merely empty of self. Because of this today, the title no self is often being reinterpreted as uh, some call this teaching not self or non-self. 
One of our favorites, uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi, who we often talk about in, uh, in our Sangha, uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi is one of the great Theravada uh, masters, scholars, interpreters. And uh, he's got lovely, lovely thoughts on secular Buddhism and others, but he's quite, the, he's, he's a bit of a traditionalist. But uh, nevertheless, he asserts that the teachings of no self does not mean that there is no self. So he prefers to use the term non-self, the Buddhist teachings on non-self. And I'll, I'll clarify this. Um, there's a discourse in the teachings in which the Buddha says that it is unwise to hold a view either that the self exists or that the self doesn't exist. So even the Buddha himself was ambiguous about this. Um, but there are parts in the sutras that do talk about what it is. So I'm setting this up and then I'm going to add some clarity to it. With that said, I'll, I'll share some of my own interpretations and beliefs. So first, it seems clear to me that what the Buddha is asserting as no self is actually no soul, no independent self-existent essence, which of course we call in the West the soul. Um, because that's what the Buddha was really talking about. So the, they, they use the word, soul is a, is a properly, uh, self is a properly uh, translated term. But when the Buddha is talking about self, he's talking about an independent self-existent self, right? An essence. And so in our last teaching on emptiness, we learned there is no such thing. All phenomena, without exception, even us, are empty of any independent self-existing essence. So it, so it doesn't sound like the Buddha is complaining about this self, which is an identity. He's talking about any kind of essential essence in us. And in the West, you know, we call this soul. That, you know, we're, when we're born in religions, they talk about when we're born, a soul is imputed into us. And then when we die, that soul goes on to heaven and continues to live. Um, the Buddha, through thorough examination, could not find this. So in Buddhism, what we commonly believe to be ourselves is referred to as person. Person is synonymous with sentient being, individual, entity, agent, or mere I. In Tibetan Buddhism, they like to use this word mere I which means merely I, me, right? Which is the most basic identity, just I, the feeling I, right? But the more, the more important and interesting term is the term agent. So in both Western and, and Eastern philosophy, they like to use this word agent when they're talking about a uh, person. And what agent is, somebody's here, let me let them in, okay. I don't have anybody to man my. So, um, so what agent means in uh, in philosophy is they're talking about agent is the doer or experiencer, right? So commonly, I think we all think of ourselves that there's an agent, a doer or an experiencer that abides behind our eyes, right? The is is the one who sees, the one who hears that there's this single 
single uh, mental uh, entity that is is us. And so anyways, we call that agent in, in philosophy. And, um, but this brings us to our second debate. And the idea is, is there really such a thing as a single agent? Now, it sure feels that way to everyone, right? Everyone would say that, you know, we, we, it seems that we have a single consciousness that makes decisions, that plans, that is us behind our eyes, that's taking in our experiences, and that's acting within our lives. The agent of improvement. Now, Tibetan Buddhism likes this view. The Dalai Lama himself is very clear. Remember that this is a controversial point. The different people have different views. The Dalai Lama was very clear. He says, yes, there is an agent. There is an agent that produces karma and, and gets its results. So Tibetans like the idea of this single agent. Um, Theravada have a little bit of a different, in fact, there's two Theravada views, so they're, they're, they're a little different. Some of you might know Sam Harris, who's a very popular atheist uh, and, and scientist, neuro, neuroscientist, and um, he has a great presentation on YouTube where he thinks that science now has proved that there is no single agent in the mind, but the mind actually takes turns in making decisions. And though it feels like there's a single agent doing it, it's actually uh, uh, different parts of your mind at any time. Now, some Tibetan schools have this idea that, that the mind isn't a king sitting on its throne, giving out orders on what to do, but instead it's like, it's like a parliament and there's different, different people are in charge at different times. But guess what? There is no, uh, uh, single thought on, on which one is accurate. This is still up for debate. So quite fascinating. Um, it seems a Buddhist concept of uh, are dependent on the idea of an existent agent, right? How do we have uh, karma without the idea uh, that that we uh, that the acts that are intentional acts that we commit are bringing with um, with them karma back to us right and of course we're talking about free will right so the idea of karma seems to be dependent on the idea of a single agent and or even rebirth right so and one of the other problems that comes up is there's an obscure quote in the sutras which often when i teach on the subject people bring up I'm always looking for, I can never remember which sutra it's fun. I couldn't find it, but nevertheless, it's a quote in the sutras that says that there is no agent, that there is no, that what they say, a ghost in the machine is a popular modern uh, philosophical term, that there is no single agent that's in charge of everything, but it's an obscure quote. And so much of the other sutras seem to point to the idea that there is a single agent. You know, there is, there is an intention and a consciousness that decides to improve itself, that in, decides to walk towards liberation, right? So imagine if there's no agent, you know, where is that intention? Where is that consciousness that decides to do, uh, to act in virtue so we can get virtuous karma and move forward on the path. For myself, 
unless I see more compelling evidence, I'm happy to work with the single agent theory. I don't see a downside to it. It's important to, to know how the mind works, but I don't necessarily think that in this case, uh, this, this, this idea of a single agent theory really gets in the way. Um, so in, with that said, I remain open and agnostic on the subject. I just keep studying and reading and you can do the same. So again, I wanna let you know that there, there isn't conclusive ideas of this within any of the Buddhist traditions. They all have different thoughts. So, um, so let's move on and let's do the next thing. Let's define what exactly we are in Buddhism. So Buddhism asserts that the person exists as an emergent, emergent property. Now, I wish I had a, an easier term for that, but that seems to be the only one. So emergent property, emergent means something that arises from something else that doesn't exist from its own side. So a nice, a nice example is the sun. So heat and light are emergent properties of the sun. They don't exist, but through the sun. They're qualities that arise from the, from the sun itself. We call these emergent properties. So Buddhism asserts that the person is actually an emergent property coming into existence in dependence on a body and a mind. In Buddhism, the body is our physical aspect. That's an easy one. And the mind is our mental aspect, defined as that which is illuminating and knows. Buddhism finds the mind to be a knower. And we're going to talk about that more in the weeks to come. We'll get into that. Person, like all phenomena, is empty of independent self-existence or any essential essence and exists merely through imputation. And remember, imputation is the idea of the mind putting the idea there, either through label, through name, through function, but a conceptual creation, the mind putting the label on something. This means that person is not a static autonomous entity, like most of us think, but instead is an interdependent dynamic processing in a state of constant change. According to the Buddha, when seen through analysis, the person is merely one's own subjective identity, the subjective narrative, me, I, and mind. So according to Buddhism, we exist as a subjective identity. And in the uh, end, uh, this is a conceptualization of one's personal subjectivity within any given moment. A concept that unifies the various aspects of ourselves and our experiences into a single uniformed identity and experience. Uh, it is this interface that connects our mind, body, environment, and experience, an interface that facilitates and makes existence possible. So let me take a second and, and go back on some of these things. So, uh, so we're saying that uh, when we talk about subjective identity in any given moment, we're talking about the idea of yourself, I, 
as the center of any experience. You know, if you're thinking about something, if you're doing something, if you're having, if you're, if you're witnessing an experience, there's always that subjective I. I am seeing this experience. I am thinking this thought, right? This subjective identity is actually you. That identity is what we actually are. Okay, to many, so to many, the thought that you exist merely as an identity may be disheartening. It was, I think, for me when I first heard it, it, it wasn't the greatest sounding thing that I'm, I exist only as a, an identity. But you have to understand in, in Buddhism, we see things, we see conceptual things as just as real as material things. Like it's easy to pick up a rock and say, this is more real than, than conceptual ideas in my mind. But in Buddhism, they're both equally real. And I always give the, the, uh, the analogy of uh, the example of marriage, that uh, marriage is just an idea, right? And so, but that idea has a, a profound impact on your environment. That idea of marriage can change lives. It can produce a huge impact on our lives and our environment, right? Our identity is very significant. It's very real. We're not saying that we don't exist because we're an identity. We're, we're heightening the level of identity and, and trying to, to get the point across that identity is a very, very real thing and a powerful thing. Our identity has the ability to drastically, uh, to engage in our environment and drastically alter or affect a profound change in our environment. Think about uh, some of the great rulers in the world. Uh, a, a conceptual idea in their mind can completely change the landscape of a country. You know, we're talking about an, uh, an idea to go to war, an idea for peace. You know, an idea itself, look at the consequence that an idea can have. It can, it, that idea of going to war could, could bring millions of people to death. So, you know, conceptual things are very, very real. Uh, Sankapa had a lovely quote, and he says uh, about this issue, about that this uh, agent is just an identity, a more ethereal kind of a thing. And he says, the fact that a substantial existent agent cannot be found does not mean that the person or agent doesn't exist at all. They exist imputedly and effectively. Isn't that lovely? So again, this is the great Tsongkhapa from the Gelug school. Remember, only 500 years ago. And this shows us a couple things. He's the, he's the creator of the Gelug school and just the, one of the greatest philosophers in Buddhism, in my opinion. Really brilliant stuff of all the traditions. And in this quote, he, he says a couple of things we've, we've been reflecting on. First of all, he's talking about, again, he says, the fact that a substantially existent agent cannot be found. And what he's talking about here is, like we said, that there is no inner, independent, self-existing person, agent, right? Uh, we, that, that cannot be found. But that does not mean that person or agent doesn't exist. So that was our second point. 
So, and again, Tsongkhapa seems to be very clear that he has no problems accepting the idea of a single person or single agent, right? So a lot of these other, other thoughts of how the brain works, is it a single agent or is it multiple? They're fascinating, but there's just not enough evidence for, for me to, to make any other decisions. I'm happy with the single agent. And then he makes the next point that who we are, us, the person, the agent, is an imputed and effective uh, identity that we is, exist as an identity. So one of my favorite quotes. An easy way to understand person is to impute uh, as an imputed identity. The easy way to understand person as an imputed identity is to see it as similar to a story that we are continuously creating and projecting. Every time we use the term I, me, or mine, we are actively imputing our identity. This act of imputation is like writing a character into a book. For our identity exists similar to a story that we are always actively writing. Isn't that fascinating, huh? Now, this is also a popular view in modern psychology, this idea of seeing identity as, as a narrative like this. And also I'd like to say that uh, there's so many uh, uh, great YouTube videos on, on identity and what we actually are. And so many schools of modern philosophy uh, have the same view that Buddhism does on the subject, that who you actually are, this thing you call me, isn't the body, it's not the mind, it's this identity, right? Okay, so let's move on to our third debate, this idea of false self. Now, this is a popular topic, and I hope I don't get in trouble by people, but I do have my own thought on this. So the, we have a handful of terms when it comes to understanding self. The terms of self, false self, conventional self, ultimate self, and even the term ego kind of wiggles its way into this. Um, so some people believe that, uh, that there's actually uh, an aspect of us that is a false self. Um, and I would say that, that I don't believe this. I don't believe there's any false self. What false self is, is simply a wrong view of how self exists, right? So some schools posit it actually like there's multiple selves, that there's a false self conventional ultimate. I think that this is incorrect. Now we can divide them up and de deconstruct them philosophically to understand them, but to go as far and to actually believe that these are actual separate entities within us is completely wrong, I think, right? Um, so uh, this wrong view of how self exists is, uh, is that that sees self as a substantial self-existent aspect of ourselves. This is this wrong view, but this is merely a false exaggeration of the self that incorrectly sees self as more substantial than it truly is. This false exaggeration of the substantial nature of self and reality is samsara itself. 
and um, and how and uh, so let me back up on that. So when we talk about false self, to me, false self is merely a wrong view of how self exists, believing that self is substantial. You know, the more of the idea of soul that that there's an aspect of me that uh, will continue after my body and everything dies will continue and, and Tenzin Tarpa will live on. But even the idea of rebirth within Buddhism, the idea of identity, identity dies in rebirth, which we'll talk about in a few weeks. Uh, rebirth, uh, the person itself doesn't, doesn't go on. What goes on is the momentum, the nuance, the flavor of a person moves on, but the person itself dies. When I die, Tenzin Tarpa will pass away. And if, if you believe in rebirth, if I am reborn, it'll be a different person that is reborn. And I'll talk about that later. So how does, um, so how does exaggerating the substantial nature of ourselves and others create suffering? So this is a wonderful point the, the Dalai Lama makes often, where he's talking about samsara itself is nothing more than our exaggeration of the substantial nature of reality, believing that everything is more real than it is. And we have a lovely prayer that you all know that says this better than I can say it now. And I'd love to go through it with you. Let's break it apart. It's our affirmation of suffering. So let me read it, and then we can go back and talk about it. Through reifying my identity, I reify my vulnerability. Through reifying my vulnerability, I reify my problems. Through reifying my problems, I reify my suffering. Conversely, through realizing the ethereal nature of my identity, I realize the ethereal nature of my vulnerability. Through realizing the ethereal nature of my vulnerability, I realize the ethereal nature of my problems. Through realizing the ethereal nature of my problems, I realize the ethereal nature of my suffering. So to go back the first line, the word reifying means to make more substantial or to make more real. It's hence reify, right? So we say through reifying my identity. Now, remember, we say identity, that's us. That's the person. Identity is I, me, my. Me, I'm the guy that went down to the shop and bought some Coca-Cola and brought it back. Identity, we exist as an identity. But by reifying my identity, by seeing it as more substantial and more real than it actually is, I reify my vulnerability. So by increasing the, the thought of, of, of how real I am, well, guess what? I also increase my vulnerability, the fear that something can happen to it, right? And then through reifying my vulnerability, I reify my problems. Through reifying my problems, I reify my suffering. So we could say that the more substantial and real we see ourselves, well, then guess what? Everything else in our life is also exaggerated, right? When we exaggerate our Ident uh, the substantiality of our identity, we exaggerate all of reality. And our vulnerability of something bad could happen to me is exaggerated and made substantial. It becomes real. Wow, I could really uh, get hurt. 
And then because we then we have that fear of vulnerability, then our problems are all more real. And then our problems are more real then of course our suffering is more real. Now again, we're not we're we're saying that the identity of the person is real. It's substantial, but it exists in a more ethereal way. Right? The our identity isn't as concrete as we'd like it we'd like to think it is. It's a lot more ethereal. Remember, we exist as a concept, an idea, right? Okay, and then in, in uh, uh, conversely, by realizing this ethereal nature of how we really exist, we realize the ethereal nature of our vulnerability, that it's not as real. And then we, we realize the ethereal nature of our vulnerability, we realize the ethereal nature of our problems. Our problems aren't as real as we day-to-day -day think they are. Problems are real, but we, amp we exaggerate our problems. We make them more real than they are. And they all become immediate and so important. And then by realizing the ethereal nature of those problems, that they're not as real as we think they are, then clearly we don't suffer as much. So I think uh, I love that prayer. I say it every single day. And it really, to me, it's the prayer of samsara and nirvana. It tells us why we're in samsara and how we reach nirvana. Um, and then we have a second prayer that I'm hoping after today's class, you'll never read this prayer again in the same way, because now I think you'll finally get it. And it's the affirmation of our true nature. And so again, let me read through the whole thing and then we can break it up piece by piece. We're doing good on time, okay. I exist as a conceptual identity, an idea, imputed upon collections labeled mine, collections labeled body, and collections labeled experiences. I'm an ethereal and wondrous entity, blessed with infinite potential and an unlimited capacity for good. These collections and identity are not static elements, but instead are dynamic processes existing interdependently in a state of constant and infinite change. My reality is a subjective interpretation of an objective world perceived through limited sense perceptions and understood by way of a collected conceptual construct, which serves as a beneficial interface with my environment. My liberation is contingent on my ever deepening understanding of this truth. Therefore, my practice is the daily cultivation and embodiment of this truth leading to its direct experiential realization, which is awakening itself. Oh, that's a lot. It took me a while to write this. I, I edited it so much. Let's start back at the top. So I exist as a conceptual identity, an idea. Boy, that's mind-blowing right away. You try to tell somebody that, that what I exist in is an, as just an idea, but but it's true. And now, then uh, our second line, imputed on collections. Now, in the Buddha's teachings on the five aggregates, remember the word aggregate or collection. So the Buddha's uh, saying that even the, the aspects of us are, are reliant on parts, causes, and conditions, like we talked about in dependent origination, that everything is interdependent. Everything you find still has parts, pieces and parts and causes and conditions that come in. So when we talk about that we exist as 
uh, a body, a mind identity, they're all collections. So our second line, so this idea is imputed upon collections labeled mind, collections labeled body, and collections labeled experiences, right? And remember, imputed is that we mentally uh, lay upon this idea of body and mind, our identity. That's, that, that serves as the basis for it, right? Um, and, but also we have collections labeled experiences because in Buddhism, they, they also assert that we don't exist without experience. It's in a teaching called Yul and Yulshan, the, uh, the observing, uh, the observing and, and the thing that's being observed. Um, and uh, we don't exist without the experience, right? The eye can't see without something to see. So we don't exist without our environment, without our experiences. So the identity is imputed upon those. And then it says, I'm an ethereal and wondrous entity. Because again, I'd like, I'd like to highlight that the Buddha is talking about that we exist in an amazing way, much more, much more uh, wondrous than the way we normally see ourselves. We see ourselves as just, just animals running around, you know, trying to live good lives. But the Buddha didn't. The Buddha saw us as just uh, wondrous beings and he he often said this and and that we're just we're blessed with infinite potential you know no matter no matter how great we are you could pick anyone through history the dalai lama the gandhi einstein on their deathbed there's always more they could have done within their lifetime we never run out of potential it's always there and also i believe that we have an unlimited capacity for good that, that we can just always move down the road and become better and better. These collections and identity are not static elements, but instead are dynamic processes existing interdependently in a state of constant and infinite change. We talk about this in dependent origination. We talk about this in emptiness, right? So if we have a body that's in constant change, right? Our cells are, are being re reborn all the time. Our mind is completely changing in every moment. So clearly our identity is as well. So everything you are, are all collections and they're all dynamic processes, never the same in any moment. Quite amazing, right? Um, and then here we talk about my reality is a subjective interpretation of an objective world. So this line asserts some schools of Buddhism still don't, uh, don't believe in objective world. They don't believe that things really exist out there. They think that everything is a projection from the mind. Uh, the Gelug school and uh, the, a lot of the great philosophers do not, I do not, there is truly an objective world. Science, I think, has conclusively proven that we can, we have instruments that can weigh phenomena. We can weigh a rock and, and it shows us that, yes, there is something there. You could put your hand in front of a flashlight and show that your hand is blocking that light. There, you know, clearly there's an objective world. But with that said, our, our own reality is a subjective interpretation of that objective world. Our eye is, uh, what we see is an interpretation of the visual uh, uh, matrix. What we smell, you know, it's all interpretive. And then what we think about those, that sense input, it's all subjective. So we have a subjective reality and we have an objective reality. Um, 
And that's what we mean by perceived through limited sense perception. As a human being, you only can perceive the world through your human senses. You only see what the human mind has the ability to see, what the, what the ear can hear, what the nose can smell. And, uh, and some animals have greater senses in these than we do. So, so our human senses are definitely limited. Um, and we understand the world through our collective conceptual construct, right? This is our subjective reality. This is our thought and our label about what things are, the, the, uh, the meaning, the value of all the things in our lives. The next line is, which serves as a beneficial interface with our life. The key word here is beneficial, because I didn't want people to think that this collective conceptual construct is somehow related to ego or something that, uh, well, we want to do away with that and we just want to exist in, in the objective world. No, there is no doing away with the conceptual construct. Buddhism uh, asserts that uh, the, the, the mind coming, consciousness coming into being, the very first ask, act of that consciousness is identifying itself. I am. So consciousness exists with the birth of the conceptual construct. There's no getting away from it. And again, it's beneficial. There's no reason to. The idea is to understand the construct and know how to use it for our benefit. So it's definitely beneficial. And now the rest of the prayer just talks about that the Buddhist path, everything within the Buddhist path is all about one thing, understanding this truth right? Uh, liberation is understanding the true nature of yourself in reality. This is the one thing. So everything we do, all the meditation we do, all the different topics we study, in one way or another, they're all just pointing to this one thing of understanding, of your understanding of the true nature of reality. Now, we have a conceptual understanding of it, which we're developing right now through study. You're getting an idea of what it is, you know, just an idea. But ultimately, we want that direct experience, which meaning oftentimes in meditation, you have an experience and it hits you and you really see the world in that way, right? Uh, we talked about this in emptiness, that oftentimes you feel your conceptual construct fall away and you see the world as it truly is. You see these components of your reality. You see your conceptual construct here, objective reality here. And this is a direct experience. It's no more an idea of what you think it is. You experience it firsthand. And according to the Buddha, this experience has changed, changes you forever. A deep, deep experience of this. You can have a, a small experience of it like I have, which is called a taste of emptiness or, or a taste or realization of emptiness or our true nature. But when you have the deepest level, it is actually to become a Buddha. That is the experience that you become a Buddha. So I hope I explained that pretty good. I have a feeling we'll have a lot of questions. And... Um, so thank you for listening to all of that. But uh, in hindsight, boy, I'm really proud of those two prayers. Those two prayers, I almost could have just told those and to sum the whole thing up.
somehow I get lucky on those. So let's wrap it up. And in conclusion, um, all of the topics in this series are asserting basically the same thing, the interdependent nature of phenomena, that phenomena, including the self, are not static objects, but instead exist as dynamic processes reliant on many aspects for their existence. These topics are clarify, uh, also clarify our own role. Ah, these topics also clarify our own role in creating our identity and our reality. Through understanding how much we create our own reality, we realize how much control we have over our reality, which leads to us gaining mastery over it. Furthermore, through realizing and embracing the ethereal, wondrous, and mysterious nature of ourselves in reality, we reduce our fears and insecurities and gain peace and contentment, right? So I think uh, the big takeaway here is um, when you realize how we exist and how reality exists, uh, again, you realize that your mind has so much control over it. We talked about this before that your reality, not objective reality, but your personal subjective reality, I would say 95% mental, right? It's all what you think about things, your likes, your dislikes, what things have values. Also simple things like what your, what your eye notices. You know, we, we take in a huge amount of information, but actually you're aware of a very small amount. Your mind decides in that visual spectrum of which things you're gonna notice. You know, very subtle things like that are involved. But um, when you start to see that, you start to realize that with some practice, you can control it. And this is how you gain mastery over your life. And you actually begin to be the architect of your reality, actively creating your reality. What do you guys think? That was long-winded. I still made it under an hour. We got any questions out there? What do you think, Paul? Did I hit this one out? Of, I did okay with emptiness last week. This is the tough subject. What do you guys think? Did I do okay? Did very well. Did very well. Mm. Ah. And like I mentioned last week, I actually haven't written this text. This text is going to be, I think we're going to call it wisdom. It's going to be the last text of our curriculum which is going to be the SBT official view, because as you noticed in our presentation, there's so much that's debated, you know, and, 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 and being a secular group, we, we try to be open to all the views, right? I, I have a Tibetan Buddhist education, but after studying Theravada and all the different Eastern Mahayana schools, and you realize when you're in the monasteries, you feel like everything has a for sure, perfect answer. Here's the answer to that question. And then when you start to broaden your education, you start to see that, wow, there's a lot of different and very good views. And it really makes you, it, make, it opens your mind. It humbles you, yeah? It made me an agnostic, right? Before I was, I think I was a technical, traditional Buddhist. I did, this is how we exist and this is reality. And I had all my answers in, in debate you get all your right answers for the right questions. And then 
I started just to realize that there was a lot more to it. And a lot of these ideas are still being debated. And just the fact that the Gelug school didn't come to their final view until 500 years ago, does that mean, you know, the Buddha was 2,600 years ago. Does that mean for, for, for 2,000 years, people had the wrong view of the Buddha's teachings? Isn't in a sense that what, that what the Gelug school is saying? That for 2,000 years, nobody knew the Buddhist teachings and we finally got it right? I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. I'm saying, you know, this is the idea. So I became agnostic, you know, that, that uh, I, I favor uh, ideas that seem productive and seem they work, but I don't hang on to them anymore. I'm open to them. You know, science is helping us understand things. You know, what I believed five years ago is so different than what I believe now. So I have to, I can't be naive. I have to think, well, five years from now, I'm going to look back and say, what a terrible video. I got everything. <laughs> I got everything wrong. So if you notice in, in our videos of the SBT, we like to talk more about, you know, possibilities of things and, and let people know what's out there. Here's what some people think, because it's important for each one of us in the Sangha to do the work ourselves. But most important is not to grasp at answers. That's what, that's what uh, that this teaches us, right? Uh, the agnostic view is, is understanding the true nature of knowledge, that knowledge is not fixed. It's always changing. Oh, as we grow, we're constantly replacing or modifying information with better versions of that information. So it seems like no matter what I study, all roads point, all wisdom converges in agnosticism because it understands the nature of wisdom, right? That the wisdom is contingent. Wisdom is ever-changing. So that's important. And then it, it helps us to stop grasping. The Dalai Lama has that great quote about just like a scientist can't, can't be attached to his work because it creates bias. He says, we as Buddhists have to be the same. We can't be attached to our Buddhist views or even the idea of, you know, what's right or what the Buddha said because it creates bias and then we lose our objectivity. So as a secular Buddhist, I am a proud agnostic. <laughs> Karen, Ms. Pema. I find it really cool when you had mentioned about... Um, you know, like oneself, but then the brain could be all different, you know, like just what their theory is. And I find that really cool because like when one part of the brain isn't actually working, like in a, a stroke victim or something like that, it's still a self, but the other part takes over, you know? So it is rather pretty cool to think about you know, what the possibilities actually are, you know, that's really cool. Yeah, for sure. And the question that comes to mind is, are, do we see them as functions or do we see them as minds? You know, uh, to, uh, Buddhism likes to just call all mental functions minds, like any kind of mental experiences are minds. We, you know, we have, they, we have six main minds, but then even other experiences, Bodhicitta, they call a mind. 
you know, any, any, any kind of lasting mental uh, experiences they call minds. So the terminology isn't very easy. Uh, in, I remember uh, in school, in, in uh, Sarah, there were two analogies. One was the king on the throne barking out orders, and then the bishops running the place where different bishops took turns. And yeah, but we, yeah, so, you know, we don't know, and science doesn't know. There's some brilliant theories out. So it seems like the only proper uh, way to be is agnostic. And, you know, the, uh, the single agent thing is, is, seems workable. You know that uh, that I'm I'm working to uh, to to be virtuous and wholesome and and that wholesome things come from that kind of behavior that seems to work and then just be open to reading about new articles and new views. You know th this whole debate about that the Buddha's actually didn't mean no self in the five aggregates. He's not saying that the five aggregates are defining the human, the the person. He's saying that person can't be found in the five aggregates. As far as I know, that's a very current debate. But it seems so logical that it's, it's hard to, to put that to rest. And Buddhism has always had this problem. And then the other one, if there's no agent, if there's no person, what about rebirth? What's reborn? And, and so Buddhism seems to, throughout its history, playing some philosophical gymnastics to try to bring these ideas together. I don't think anybody has ever put together a really uniformed idea. I think there are separate ideas that still seem pretty different. Now, every tradition would disagree with me 100%. No, we have it. But, you know, what they believe is true, another tradition disagrees with. So we can't really tell which one's right or wrong. Even in debate, you learn just because somebody wins a debate doesn't mean they're right. Fascinating, huh? Paul? But there has to be something there for the karma. There has to be something inside, call it Buddha nature, for the karma to go through multiple rebirths. Yep. That's right. Well, they call it a karmic stream. We're going to talk mm. about that when we when we get around to to uh, talking about rebirth. We'll give a class on rebirth in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, man, it's tough. And There's, also, you know, yeah, go on. and also um, a lot of it is conditioning in this life, so we don't see what's real. For instance, since we're born, we cry, we're cold, we want milk. I want, I want. And it goes all the way until your deathbed. And that's when you say, oh, I wish I was more loving. I wish I was more compassionate. And it's only for non-Buddhists or for non-religious people. There's certain times in your life, for instance, if you have a terrible car crash and you're lucky to escape with your life, suddenly you take stock of everything, even though it's only momentary. So a lot of it is life gets in the way sort of thing, rather than saying how things really are. And the fact that you're a con constantly evolving idea rather than a fixed personality. Beautifully said. Yeah, the, so the, the first part you were, you were talking about with, um, 
you know, we have all these fixed ideas. Of course, you know that this is in the teachings of uh, mind and mental factors that that there's this, and, and that is the mental, that is the conceptual construct, right? Mm. That we have all these pre prefabricated views and ideas and likes and dislikes, and we see the world through that. So our conceptual construct are colored glasses, and it's different for every single one of us. And we never see the world. We only see through those colored glasses, unless you're a Buddha, according to traditions you know but yeah we we only see through all of that all of that things and a lot of it's subconscious you're exactly right and we see ourselves as fixed single solid tenzin tarpa here i am but that brings a lot of problems with it you know because when we see ourselves fixed then we see our problems as real and fixed i shouldn't use the word real substantial and that's again that exaggeration right and then our, then our suffering is just exaggerated. When you really kind of get the idea that you're an idea, then it's like, well, how does an idea really get hurt? How vulnerable is an idea? How much damage can... I mean, they could physically damage your body. They could, and you could physically damage your mind. But the identity, which is you, you know, how is that one? That, you know, I mean, I mean, it's damaged when people insult you or when people... Uh, self-image, right, can be damaged. But that's just an, ex an aspect of this identity, right? If you're beyond worrying about all that stuff, you know, you're kind of, you've, all of a sudden you kind of get it, you're indestructible. Mm. So yeah, life is, life changes. Beautifully said, Paul. Tenzin Dorje, what do you think? Heavy subject. Indeed, and uh, I'm looking forward for future um, <laughs> repetition or any. But I, I have one question. Um, sure. Uh, within, I don't remember exactly the spot, but you were talking about the, almost like the mind uh, structure, like uh, a lot of people and like a democracy running, or yeah. is it another? Can you elaborate? a little bit more on, on that part of your teaching yeah so so again um there's there's these two ideas that the mind or let's call it the agent right you the person uh exists uh -huh. as a king like you are the one person in charge of the land you make all the decisions all the results come to you that's the common way i think everybody thinks of themselves like that i'm seeing i'm hearing but uh, one view in, in some Buddhist schools is that that's not the way it works, that that mind itself is interdependent and mind itself is kind of made up of other minds. Um, in, in Buddhism, they talk about consciousness itself are different consciousnesses, that the eye, the eye organ, when it touches an object, creates a specific consciousness that's eye consciousness your consciousness and in a mental consciousness and then those so even consciousness is divided so so there's not just everything are collections so so one school asserts that this agent is also a collection and what's interesting is like sam harris has a video on he believes that science is now moving in that direction that the mind takes turns but it's an it's an open question i haven't 
There's nothing, there's no compelling evidence. It's all just theory. But I, I remember learning. Both. I used to think about it too. Yeah, mm. thank you for elaborating. And then, and then uh, there's another aspect of it. Nowadays, and a lot of this is theoretical, but they're talking about gut bacteria and uh, intelligent cells with intelligence in our stomach. Uh, there, people theorize that all the cells in our body have a, a certain amount of intelligence. Some theorize that all of our cells come together to make one intelligence, which would be closer to the Buddhist thought. The Buddhist thought is that the mind doesn't exist in the brain. The mind is, exists throughout the body. And, and so, uh, but again, uh, I think people get, get mixed up when they start to take these things as, as, as actual uh, considerable views. They're not, they're all just contention at this point. So we have to be careful okay. what, what we really follow and what we don't. But I, I really wanted to press on everybody at just how Buddhism isn't as, um, uh, what's the word I want to use? Ah, uh, substantial. Uh, isn't the, the views aren't as solid as, as we would like to think. Beginners coming in, they think, oh, Buddhism has, I did. Buddhism has all the answers and here's what it is. But then, you know, when you're in the monasteries and you get to the higher classes, you know, everybody starts to move away from fixed ideas and, and you start to uh, to realize that, and then especially when you when you open up your mind to other traditions, and and other traditions having brilliant views as well, you start to let go of it all, and you realize that uh, the all these ideas are still in a state of flux. And to be honest, I think truth always will be. I think when you come up when you come to fixed points, usually truth isn't there. Truth is always in a state of flux because there's always more to be learned, right? There's always a limitation on our capacity to understand truth. So it seems like truth, like, like we're describing here, is interdependent, it's ethereal, it's in a state of constant change as well, other than simple, simple truths. I know that it's nighttime outside. You know. <clears throat> I hope I don't get in trouble with some of the views. I'm, I'm just kind of letting my whole heart out today. Paul. And it's also, um, it's a, like the Buddha said, don't take what I'm saying as gospel kind of thing. You have to go out and search for yourself, see if it's true. And it's a floor of humanity. Different schools of Buddhism, different religions, you know, Christians, Muslim, all that, saying this is the right way. This is how it's got to be. And as humans, we tend to cling on to absolutes because we're not comfortable with an ever-evolving idea. I think it unnerves us. Even if it's wrong, we don't care. We want to know. You tell mm. me now, is there rebirth? Yes or no? Yeah, yeah. It does. It unnerves us. We want certainty. And, mm. an, and a good agnostic realizes there is no certainty. Other than simple can, things. Yeah. And you can learn to take comfort in the uncertainty. Especially when you see the beauty in it. When yeah. you see the wondrous nature, this, this miracle of existence, the way it functions in this way. Mm. That's when you get comfortable with it, when you see the beauty of it. And when mm. you realize that to exist as an, identity, an idea, an identity is amazing. And when you, when you think about, wow, that's... A, 
the Buddha is saying that we exist in so much of a cooler way than we think we do. You know, we just think that we're sometimes naughty, sometimes nice, dirty animal kind of things, you know, but all of a sudden we're an idea, we're a concept, we're, it's like the Buddha is like unleashing us from our, our body and soul. You know? mm. People have yeah. a hard time embracing impermanence these days. Yeah. Yeah. Particularly nowadays. Yeah. Miss Pema? Um kind of you can you can embrace like the the lifetime of learning and seeking and finding out and information. And that's what I really like about Buddhism. It's like, you know, coming from the conservative Christian, like this is the way it is because it is. And, you know, it, it's really, it's cool just getting into and thinking and wondering and having all these ideas and concepts that you continually will learn through science, through experience, through all that. It's pretty cool. Yeah. And when we talk about uh, that in emptiness, that all things are interdependent in a state of constant change, right? Then they do mean all things and even, even wisdom and knowledge itself, right? Uh, Nargarjuna is famous for saying, there can be no um, complete view or, or theory of existence itself. He believed it, was in, it wasn't even possible. Uh, many believe that the Buddha, what he taught us, wasn't some universal truth. He just taught us what we could understand that, that possibly and possibly reality is so much more that our minds just couldn't even get around. So even with this, the Buddha is giving us a skillful representation of reality. Karen? No, I was just going to say, and, and, you know, like you said, the, the concept of self is always evolving through experience through you know different where you live where what you're exposed to that's <laughs> i like it <clears throat> culture your friends your family your parents started building it didn't they they started your story <laughs> they gave it a name <laughs> right they they told you taught your values yeah and then our peers come in and do it and we do it it's constantly changing Yes, it's, a, it's an incredible topic. Yeah, fascinating. Ravi, you have anything to say down there? It's getting late in India, I know. Yeah, I understand this, but uh, I need more study and more, like, I have to more research on this topic. Yeah, I need yeah we all do. In so many ways, I think it's a, a fairly easy topic. It's just hard to communicate it. I'm trying to get better and better at communicating it. But again, it all ties into emptiness. So if you can find that simplicity that we were trying to get to an emptiness, that to understand emptiness is just to understand dependent origination, right? Interdependence. Then the talk we had today was, was that's all we talked about, that this includes person. This includes us. Identity is interdependent on so many causes and conditions, right? Yeah. And the other thought is, can you, can you ever get away from your identity? I mean, when you're in a coma, you know, yeah, 
but you're not conscious. That doesn't really count. And if you come out of the coma, there it is waiting for you. You know? Yeah. Uh, oh, I did have one idea. I had a question that let's see if it's any good. Oh, this idea of essenceless. So um, there's a couple of different ideas that there's no essential essence within us. And then, the, of course, the big question becomes, well, then what's, re, what's reborn, right? Isn't there some essential essence in us that's reborn lifetime after lifetime? And, of course, Buddhism has to do some more mental gymnastics to try to answer this. Um, Tantra asserts a life force that animates us. It's always there. That could be, some could even say, well, isn't that the idea of soul? But I think soul is more of a, a constant identity that uh, an, a fixed and autonomous ent uh, identity. I think that's what we think about as soul. But here when they talk about life force, they're just talking about that which animates us. Not you, not your name, not your things, just the animating force. But I had the idea that what about in science nowadays, we have the genome and we have DNA. And so each person has a DNA that's particularly unique to you. Could we consider this to be an essential essence? Though that DNA dies when we die, right? It wouldn't be reborn. So maybe I just answered that question. Buddhism would just say, no, that DNA is, is like part of the body that it too is not going to continue. But there's a lot of fascinating thoughts and debates, and I want everybody to stay open to it all. Yeah? To just remember, there's a, there's a lot of really fascinating ideas about this. So today's the last class on this uh, series, the true, uh, the tr Our True Nature. And so uh, next week, I think we're going to dig into more about self more about minds and consciousness because there's so much to learn about ourselves and that'll be fun the next handful of weeks yeah okay with that said i'm going to end the recording and we can say a prayer when we're done